Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. What a blessing to be part of a local church. You know that our belonging to Christ in the universal church, you know, sometimes we move and we uh, go to a new town and we kind of go through those transitions where we're not really part of a local church. And we should, in those situations, feel a little out of place, feel like we don't really have a home. Although we are among Christians, it is something, there's something lacking in not being part of a local church, covenanted together with God's people in a single place. So we praise God for this church. We praise God for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather as a family, as Christians, and as those who are part of Four Corners Church to worship our great King. If you would, at this point, go with me in your Bibles. Turn or scroll or flip, whatever you need to do, to get to Romans chapter 4. We're in Romans 4, verses 1 to 12. In his commentary on this passage, Pastor John MacArthur includes these wonderful words from the hymn, It Is Finished, by James Proctor. Here's a part of it. Nothing, either great or small, nothing, sinner, no. Jesus did it, did it all. Long, long ago, when he, from his lofty throne, stooped to do and die, everything was fully done, hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago." Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. It is finished, yes, indeed. Finished every Jot, sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Christ alone. Justification, being put in the right with God, being declared righteous in God's sight. Justification by faith alone, not by works. This is our theme as we enter into Romans 4. To use Paul's words in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who does not work. In every other religion in the world, every other religion under the sun, to use the language of Ecclesiastes, you get to heaven by your works. You climb the ladder by your works. Whatever heaven is, however heaven or paradise or nirvana or whatever is defined, you get there by your deeds by your works, by the things you do. In Christianity, no workers allowed. Do you hear that? In Christianity, no workers allowed. Christianity is the only religion that boldly declares that we do not get to heaven by what we do. And to the one who does not work, but believes. To that person, there is eternal life. 
This is the only religion in the world that makes man small and God big. The only religion on the planet that makes God holy and just and gracious and kind and good and shows man to be powerless to change his state. And we know that wherever in the world we find a system of works righteousness, meaning that you attain heaven or whatever it is, salvation, by your works, wherever we find that, under the surface, filled with pride. Pride bubbling over. We see this at the time of Jesus. There is Jesus ministering to all kinds of people. He's sitting, eating, reclining with tax collectors, with shady folks, with criminals. And it's not those people that Jesus blasts, though he tells them, go and sin no more. It is the prideful Filled with a sense of their own goodness. The prideful religious leaders whom Jesus blasts. Read Matthew 23. Woe to you Pharisees. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were filled with this sense of pride. This sense of self-righteousness because they were attaining heaven by their own works. Not so according to the gospel. The title for the sermon today is Faith Not Works. Back to the beginning, part two. Part one was last week. Today we will look at part two. At the end of chapter three, Paul makes his point. We are justified by faith, not works. That's the glorious passage that we have over there on the wall. As it has been said, this passage is the the most significant ever written in human history, as some have said. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, this majestic statement of Paul's main theme, justification by faith apart from works. Faith in Christ as the sacrifice for sin. So see this, it is not just faith, it is faith in Christ. And it is not just faith in Christ, it is faith in Christ as a substitutionary, as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. So it's it's filled out with detail. What we are talking about here is not the generic faith of the Hallmark movie. Have faith. It's not that. It is faith in this glorious Christ, this biblical Christ, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice, as a a propitiation to assuage his wrath. He put him forward to take sin upon himself in our place. That Christ is the object of our faith. And that was what Paul had to say at the end of Romans chapter 3, that towering mountain peak passage. Now... In chapter 4, he illustrates his point. So he makes his point. He declares his point at the end of chapter 3. He sets it up in preceding chapters. And now in chapter 4, he illustrates his point by going back to the beginning. Back to the beginning with Abraham. As we saw last week, the Jews of Paul's day considered Abraham the great worker. Remember what we just read. It's not the one who works. But for the Jews in Paul's day, Abraham was just that. He was the great worker. He was the quintessential good man, the father of the nation. If you asked a Jew who is a perfect example of a good person, of a righteous person, immediately they would say, oh, Father Abraham, of course, of course, the father of our nation. God accepted him because of his faithful works. Just go and read. Look at how faithful he was to God. 
Look at how he obeyed God. Look at what he did. God accepted him because he worked his way there. He was found faithful. No, says Paul. Look at the scriptures. Look at the Bible. The Bible you say that you believe as he, as he addresses here Jewish readers or, or those who would, who would be coming to the Christian faith or, or hearing Paul preach who would have these objections. He says, look at the very scriptures that you claim for yourself. What do they say? Abraham was declared right with God by faith in God. He was declared right with God by faith, not by his works. So if you would stand with me, we're going to go ahead and read this passage. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And as we read these 12 verses, we're going to focus today on verses 6 to 12. So last week, verses 1 to 5. Today, we're going to come out of what we saw in verses 1 to 5 and look at these latter verses, 6 to 12. So let's read God's Word. This is God's Word, His revelation, His written revelation. It is perfect and profitable. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I'm going to read that again. That's the pivotal point. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work... Who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And here's where we pick up today. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Praise God for those words. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You could go ahead and be seated. That's a mouthful there, verses 9 to 12. And you really have to kind of untangle what it is that Paul is saying. Verses 9 to 12, there is a lot there. But before we jump into the details of this passage, let's pray, ask God for his help. Let's ask that God would help us this morning to focus. It is hard to listen to preaching. Our minds are busy, especially for our children. We just ask that God would help us, help, help me to be clear, and help all of us to be attentive to his precious word. So let's pray and ask for his grace. Father, we thank you for the Bible your revelation to us regarding who you are. Who is this God who made human beings? Who made us? Why are we here? What is your great plan? How do we fit into your plan? How is history unfolding? And where is it going? God, we're so grateful that 
in the Bible, you tell us answers, beautiful, wonderful, rich, detailed answers to all of these questions. And God, we come now and we come with open ears and open hearts. We pray that you would open those further. God, we ask that you would humble us before your word, that we would bow before it, that we would sit under it. God, that we would analyze it and observe and and sit over it in that respect, God, but that in our hearts with humility and worship and faith and confession of sin, that we would be under your word today. God, we pray that you would show us here our sinfulness, our need for a Savior, show us your glory, show us your plan, and help us to understand what Paul has articulated here in these verses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage calls the reader to do three things. This passage puts three demands on the reader, and those are our three points that we have up there. And that's our job as we come to the text of Scripture, is to ask what what is communicated here and to seek to understand what is here in this book, what's here in this paragraph, in these words. And so uh, the Scripture here puts these three demands on us, to learn from Abraham, which we looked at last week, verses 1 to 5, to listen to David, and then number three we'll look at today as well, to look at the order. So listen to David and look at the order. That's what will occupy our time today. So let's look first, starting in verse 6, at listen to David. The text tells us, the Holy Spirit tells us through Paul to listen to David. So look at verses 6 to 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here, Paul moves from one major Old Testament figure to another. He moves from Abraham in verses 1 to 5 to David in verses 6 to 8. In 1 to 5, he shows that Abraham is the great and early illustration of justification by faith apart from works. Look at Abraham. Learn from Abraham. And what we learn from Abraham is, no, 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 no. He's not the great worker. He's the man whom God saved by faith, justified by faith. Look at him, learn from him. He is the quintessential and early illustration of this great doctrine of the Bible. His main text is Genesis fifteen six. So Paul here, in rabbinical fashion, like a Jewish rabbi, is unpacking. He's explaining, he's tying texts together. And he's going back to the Hebrew Bible and he's saying, of all that you see there, let's laser beam in on chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 6. That's his main text. And he quoted that in verse 3. But now he moves to Israel's great king. So from Israel's great patriarch to the nation's great king. Paul's focus, we need to understand, is still on Abraham. He has not departed from Abraham. Abraham is the main theme, or the main illustration of the theme, that we find all throughout chapter 4. His focus is still Abraham, but he wants to give further confirmation through the mouth of David. And so he quotes David in order to confirm what he sees in Abraham. He's told us to learn from Abraham, and now he quotes from Psalm 32 to show us what David had to say. Now, there are many things that we could say about David. You've read the stories of David. I'm sure some of you, some of you have not. You find these in First and Second Samuel, 
author of many of the Psalms, most of the Psalms, we could say. Shepherd boy, son of Jesse, God's anointed king, a man after God's own heart. And of course, most well known, the boy or teenager who with a heart full of faith and trust in the Lord God of Israel slays the giant Goliath. A lot of things we learn in the Bible about David. But there's another big fact about David that the Bible presents to us as well. David was a great sinner. He was a great sinner. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? After all of those accolades, after all of those comments about David, the the scripture writer, the anointed king, the faith-filled killer of the enemy of Israel, Goliath. And yet the text tells us in the Old Testament that in addition to all of these things, David was a great sinner. A great sinner. We talked last week about Abraham's sinfulness. Our time in Genesis exposed that. We saw how Abraham lied when he went down to Egypt at the end of chapter 12. He lied to Pharaoh, basically put his wife on the chopping block, so to speak. Said she was just his sister because she was so beautiful. He was afraid the people in the land would get rid of him and take her. He did it again later. And then we, of course, see how he takes things into his own hands as he listens to his wife over the Lord. He listens to his wife in taking Hagar as Uh, a conduit for having a child through Sarah, his wife, Sarah's Egyptian servant, maidservant, Hagar. We see Abraham is not a perfect person. We see that in the narrative of Genesis as it unfolds. And of course, we get a little more detail in Joshua 24 too, as I brought forward last week, which tells us that Abraham came from a family of idol worshipers. Probably they worshiped largely the moon goddess in Ur. Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur, an ancient Mesopotamian city. You can go online and look at one of the preserved ziggurats. These amazing, probably uh, descendants of the Tower of Babel. These amazing looking uh, pyramid-like structures in Mesopotamia. This is what would have been a part of Abraham's idol-worshiping world. He worshipped the moon goddess, probably his father and his father's father, we find in Joshua 24, 2. So, we saw last week that Abraham was also a sinner. Like all human beings, Abraham himself was numbered among the ungodly. As Paul says in chapter 4, verse 5. He believed in the one who justifies the ungodly. Abraham put his faith in God, who is God. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Paul's language there is like a boomerang back on Abraham, making clear that Abraham was also ungodly, also a sinner. But where Abraham's sin was more subtle in the Bible, Right, we kind of got to dig for it. We've got to look for it. We've got to get our, our little archaeological brush and, and start to sweep away the dirt and find facets of Abraham's sinfulness. He is presented quite well, similar to Noah or to Joseph, others throughout the Old Testament. You really have to kind of get the broom out and start to sweep away so that you can see the sinfulness of the person. It's, it's more subtle. That was the case with Abraham, but that is certainly not the case with David. David's sinfulness in the Old Testament is put on clear display for us. Lusting after Bathsheba, there's a woman bathing on her roof. There's David out on his terrace of his palace. And unlike Job, as he says, I've made a 
covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young woman. David did the opposite. He gazed. He took her in with his eyes. Lusting after her, another man's wife. Taking her to himself in adultery and then covering up his sin or trying to cover up his sin. And then finally, a nice sinful cherry on top. He has her husband sent to the front lines in his army. And even more, her husband is a loyal foreigner, loyal to David, loyal to the king, loyal to the Israelites, has him sent to the front line with orders to the general that he be put there in order to be killed. Put him where the swords are coming down. Put him where he is sure to be killed. We got to get rid of this guy. I want his wife, and I don't want my sin exposed. This is David, presented just so clearly for us there in the Bible. Oh yeah, David, God's anointed king, a man after God's own heart, was indeed a sinner, a great sinner. And yet, David was blessed. He was blessed. This idea of blessing appears all throughout the Bible. We see it throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Blessing. It is used of those who trust the Lord, fear the Lord, those who are committed to his word. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. I love that passage. It's a picture of the blessed person committed to the Lord's revelation. But here, David gets at the heart of the matter. Who is a blessed or blessed person? How does a person become blessed? I mean, this word, we get it in the Chick-fil-A drive through line almost every time. Have a blessed day. And that's wonderful. We say it, and it's great. But it's tossed around to and fro, right? Bless, bless, bless. Blessings. Be blessed. Be blessed today. It's a big catch word. But how does a person become blessed? Really? Blessed. Happy. Happy. Asharei. The old Hebrew idea, the old Hebrew word of happiness, being happy. In the deepest, truest sense of the word, not superficial happiness. You almost can't even use this word for this particular word, blessed, because happiness has no meaning in our culture. Happiness is not even an inch deep. It's like a millimeter deep. It has absolutely no meaning. It's like the crust on the top of the crust on the top of the crust. But it is happiness in the truest, deepest sense. This is blessedness. This is blissfulness. This is happiness from the creator's perspective. And remember, he made the world and said, good, 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 very good. He's the one who defines goodness Order, what is right, what is fitting, what is in line with reality. He's the one who defines that, outlines its contours. The creator declares what is good and right, what is, in human terms, happy, what is blessed. As David tells us in Psalm 32, the blessed person is one whose lawless deeds and sins are removed. That's the heart of the issue. A blessed person is one whose sins are removed. John Stott, I think here, does a really good job 
of defining or summarizing these two ideas of lawless deeds and sins as they appear here in the original text. Sin is both the stepping over a known boundary. That's the idea of lawlessness, right? A law is a boundary and you step over it. So sin is both the stepping over a known boundary and the falling short of a known standard. That Greek word for sin here has that imagery of falling short of something. So stepping over something you ought not to step over and falling short of something you ought to meet. And of course, lawlessness has the idea of rebellion, doesn't it? The idea of rebellion. As fallen human beings who are in Adam, the guilt of our sin sticks to us like tar. It saturates us. It covers us. We are guilty before God and condemned. Our account, think of it this way. When you die, if you die apart from Christ, you die, your account is filled, filled with sin guilt. Everything is in the red. There's no black. Everything is in the red, filled with Sin, guilt, entirely in the red. But here is the blessed person. Lawless deeds, forgiven. Sins, covered. Sin, with all of its guilt, not counted to us. That is the blessed person. Happiness is defined by one's relation to sin. Unhappiness defined by one's relation to sin, to guilt before God. Now, there are two things here that I want to note quickly before we move on. First, I want you to see Christ in these words. It's beautiful, really. Christ is present so much in these words written a thousand years before Christ came. We're going to celebrate that at Christmas time as we talk about here is this baby born, the Savior of the world, who was promised for hundreds, thousands of years. And you can go back and you can read in the Old Testament these promises. There's one who's going to come, and this is what he's going to be like, and this is what he's going to do. Prophecies. It's amazing. All throughout the Old Testament. And what we see here is that these words point to the work of Christ. How are sins not counted to us? Because they are counted to Christ. That's amazing. Recently hearing Lee Strobel, he was uh, doing a convocation discussion at Liberty University, and I was listening to the interview that he, uh, he gave, and he was talking about the resurrection and the evidences for the resurrection. He was talking, he wrote The Case for Christ, by the way, which you haven't read that, you should get a copy of it, but he was talking about the resurrection and the, the case for the resurrection historically, and he was talking about the crucifixion, and as I was hearing his description of the crucifixion, it was just, it was, it was piercing, What Jesus endured, the descriptions of the flaying of the back, the descriptions of bowels being visible from the back. Bowels being visible from the back of people who were were whipped and flogged in the way Jesus was. Arteries exposed. Bones seen. That's nothing. The sin of God's people was put to his account before the face of God. God looked on Christ and he saw the vilest of sinners and he crushed him for you and for me. That's what Christ did. Our sin counted to him, to his account. He came for that very purpose. He came to absorb God's wrath for our sin. He came to have our sin put on him. That's the whole reason he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's the whole reason that he was raised as a boy, became a man, 
was pointed to by John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The whole reason he started his ministry and called disciples, he was headed to the cross from the very beginning. Philippians 2 says he stepped out of heaven for this very purpose, to die even on the cross. He took our sin into his account and God punished him for it. How are they covered? Our sins. By Christ's blood. The imagery of our sins being covered by the sacrifice that atones for sin, that covers our sins so that God looks down upon us and doesn't see our sin. I love the imagery of the Passover in the Old Testament in Exodus where, where God comes through and all the Egyptians, there's no blood. There's no blood. Remember, God promised Adam and Eve. He said, or Adam, he said, the day you sin, there will be death. And blood has always been a part of the story because blood points to death. And death was the penalty for sin. And so, no blood over the Egyptians. No blood there. And so God exacted judgment on them. But then he went by his people and he saw blood. And he, and he passed over them. They were covered with the blood. Jesus' blood is the true blood, and it covers our sins. When David says, blessed is the man whose sins are covered, it points to Christ and Christ alone. His work of covering us with his sacrificial death. And then how are they forgiven? Because Christ paid the ransom. The idea of redemption, the idea of Christ being put forward as a ransom and forgiveness of sin is always associated with redemption. How are we forgiven? Through redemption, through a ransom, Christ put forward as payment for us. So Christ is all over these words. Do you see that? But there's a second thing I want you to see here, a second quick note. I know that note wasn't so quick, but I want to make a second note. I want you to see that Here we are looking at true happiness. I alluded to this before, but I want to camp out here for a moment. And I want to make this statement. Only a Christian can be truly happy. Only a Christian can be truly happy. Because it is only for the Christian that sin has been dealt with in this way. It's only for the Christian that this sin has been removed. And we see here, blessedness as defined by the Creator has to do with the removal of sin. Where sin remains, there is not blessedness. No, 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 no. Where sin remains, there is unhappiness to the extreme. Because the person for whom sin has not been removed is doing one of two things and both simultaneously. With regard to sin, they are either embracing sin or trying to remove it themselves. Both of which results in an unhappy life. So listen, this morning, if you're here and you are trying to remove your own sin, work it off, trying to counteract it with some good, resolving to do things a little bit better, trying really hard. You're here this morning and you're trying to remove your sin on your own. That is a miserable life because you will never be able to do it. And here's what you need to see. In your efforts to try to remove your own sin, what you are finding there in its place is nasty pride. Because every sin that we uproot gives us an opportunity to judge our neighbor for that very same sin that we feel we've just purged. So you're either trying to remove it yourself, it's a miserable, burdened life, or you're just embracing it. Hedonistically, you're just living for pleasure, and that is an enslaved life. That is a life of poverty spiritually. That is a life in which you just give yourself over to yourself and live for your own glory and live for your own belly, to use that Description in the Bible. This is an unhappy life. And this is the lot of every person who's not a Christian. 
Every non-Christian person is doing one of these two things or both simultaneously throughout his or her life until they drop dead. That's life in this world apart from Jesus in whom sin is removed and happiness is restored. I was recently hearing uh, someone talk about the Puritans, and I've always been fascinated with the Puritans, and every time I read them, my heart just feels like it's on fire. just feels like God's just putting gasoline on my heart. Wonderful theologians, and not just heady theologians, but men of the heart, men who, who took the, the truth of God's Word and just massaged it like sweet balm into every nook and cranny of the heart. And I recently heard Joel Beakey, he's kind of the Puritan guy, and I recently heard him say that uh, the Puritans were, were some of the most joyful people that have ever lived. And they're oftentimes categorized as the stuffy, legalistic, sort of, uh, uh, you know, curmudgeon kind of people, but it's, it couldn't be further from the case. They were filled with joy, and that is because they lived. And breathe these glorious truths. Let me just also say this about happiness. A Christian ought to be happy. Let me just remind us of that this morning. And once again, I don't mean that little light crust. I mean deeply happy. A Christian ought to be happy. I don't mean always smiling. I don't mean life is always going well. I remember being at the beach one time and see, uh, heard this mom talking to her child and, and the child was doing something and the mom kept telling the child, remember we smile, remember we smile. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about just always having a smile so that you can project something positive in our optimistic world. That's not it. I'm talking about deep rivers of joy in the heart. Christians ought to be happy. In this way. Because of what David says in Psalm 32. Because it's a reality for the Christian. But because David's words are meant to be a confirmation of what God did in Abraham's life. Paul now returns to Abraham. So let's go back to Abraham. And we're coming to our third and final point now. Look at the order. So we've learned from Abraham. We've listened to David. And now we're going to look at the order. So look with me at verses 9 to 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So once again, got to kind of untangle that. Paul doesn't want to miss a logical step. So he's very careful here, and that's why it's so wordy. Could have probably said all of this in one sentence, but it would not have been made as clearly as it is here. You can't mistake his point because he makes it over and over and over again and very logically. Here Paul makes a point about timing. That's at the heart of the point. A point about timing. Let's go back to Genesis 15, he says, to verse 6. So he's, he's left Psalm 32. We just drank that in. Oh, that was so sweet. Now we're back to Genesis 15, 6. And there, remember, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now when we go back there, (coughs) where is circumcision? Where is it? When we go back to Genesis 15, 6, where is circumcision in the scene? This major Jewish 
right, this central act of obedience of the law, that key Jewish identifier that surely of all things marks out Abraham's obedience to God, his righteousness, his works. We go back, Genesis 15, 6, we're digging around, we're looking for it. Where is circumcision? Answer, nowhere to be found. It's it's not there. You have to fast forward two chapters and more than 14 years at the very least given how old Ishmael was in chapter 17, and given what happens with Hagar in chapter 16, it's at least 14 years later, two chapters, 14 years later, before you get any mention of circumcision. Abraham was a declared righteous man for the most of two decades, perhaps more, with no circumcision. Look at the order of events. Paul says justification by faith came long before circumcision. It was not the work of circumcision that rendered Abraham righteous. It was not his act of obedience. Rather, it was faith alone. So remember the main idea. Faith not works. Circumcision here being understood as a chief or the chief work. Faith not works. Look at, look at circumcision. Look when that came. After, much later than faith, which justified. He believed God's promise, chapter 15, and God credited it to him as righteousness. But what does this do to circumcision? This elimination of the foreskin of the genitals of a male child. And in the case of Abraham, a male adult, this sign, what does this do to circumcision? Paul's words seem to make circumcision irrelevant. After all, God did command it to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 17. It was a command of God. And in fact, God said to Abraham that a person who's not circumcised shall be cut off from their people. It was serious. It was a command. Paul, hold on a second. His Jewish brethren would have said to him, hold on a second, Paul. You know circumcision is significant. You know God commanded it. It's there. It's a mark of Jewish identity. What are you saying, Paul? Paul explains here that the role of circumcision, listen to this, was never to justify Make right with God, be declared right in God's sight. The role of circumcision was never to be a justifying device. It was never a justifier. Circumcision did not do that. Various Jewish writings at the time declared that no circumcised person could go to hell. In fact, one very strange writing, rabbinical writing, says that if a, if a wicked, circumcised man were to die... Before he could be dragged down into hell, the angels would have to come and uncircumcise him. I won't say any more, but you get the point. That's the kind of thing that was understood. Circumcision did it for you. You were good. If you were circumcised, you are good. You're right with God by virtue of that Act. Paul says no. Circumcision was never a justifier. Look at Abraham in 15.6. Go forward to to chapter 17. It was never a justifier. Instead, it was always meant a sign and a seal. That's what he says about circumcision. It pointed back to and confirmed or authenticated justification by faith, which means that it added nothing to salvation. Abraham was quite fine, justified between chapters 15 and 17. It's not like God partially justified him and said, 70%, 82.5%, the rest is coming down the line. Don't worry, you're partially there. Once circumcision happens, then 
your obedience, your works are going to be in place. We'll supplement that 70 with 30, and you're good to go. That's not what happened. 100% justification by faith, which means that circumcision added nothing to salvation. Outward circumcision was a symbol of inward circumcision, and it was always meant to be that way. Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Do you see? It doesn't take Jesus coming along in the Sermon on the Mount to say, no, 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 no. It's not about outward works. It's about the heart. That's all over the Bible. Jesus is teaching what's always been taught. What was in the law, what was in the prophets, it's about the heart. Romans 2, 29, which we've already looked at, circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So let's just pause for a moment, because this whole discussion of circumcision, you know, I know I remember growing up in church hearing that. I would always just go cross-eyed when we would talk about circumcision. I was like, what in the world? Zero relevance. Zero relevance. To today, at least it seems. But I want us to, we need to understand what Paul is saying about faith and works and how circumcision plays into that. So we do need to go in here and unfold that. But I want to try to bring this to our own day as we think about faith and works. And I want to give you a quote from Martin Luther here, which I think is helpful for thinking about faith and works as we consider circumcision as a sign and seal. He says this, Today, those who are justified by faith are commanded to do good, to circumcise without ceasing their perverse desires, and to crucify their flesh with its wicked affections and lusts. By doing this, they prove as by signs that they have faith and have been justified. Meaning this, the circumcision that Abraham endured and endured in chapter 17 was a sign and seal of what had happened in chapter 15. It authenticated it. It said, look, this has really happened in Abraham's life. By virtue of the fact that God gave it to him and by virtue of the fact that Abraham did it, it was an authentication of what was before. This is the kind of thing James is saying in chapter 2. James and Paul aren't in conflict here. And what Martin Luther is saying here is that our works become a sign and seal of the fact that we really are converted. So we look at our lives and we see, just as John says, if you say that you are in the light, but you walk in darkness, you're a liar, right? You look at your life, and if you see a life void of prayer, you see a life void of good works, love for one another, 1 John You see a life void of care for God's word, a life consumed with selfishness, a life in which there's very interest in the glory of God, no affections for Christ Jesus. That is a life that does not prove itself authentic with regard to justification. That's what Luther's saying. Yeah, the great justification by faith alone champion. Here's saying that the works themselves show whether or not it's true. Our works are not irrelevant, but by no means do they justify the sinner. As the passage comes to a close, as we finish this morning, we are told something very interesting about all of these circumstances in Abraham's life. About the timing of these events as we read them in Genesis. So I want to read the latter part of verse 11 through verse 12 one more time. Look with me at that, where we see the purpose What's God doing through all of this? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, God's purpose was to establish Abraham as the father of all who believe 
whether circumcised Jew or uncircumcised Gentile. Abraham was a Gentile for a while before he became a Jew. (laughs) That's not really what Paul is saying, but that's kind of the idea. He was a Gentile for a long time. He was an uncircumcised man. That's what you would call a Gentile. In fact, during the first century, the Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcision. They're called the uncircumcision. And it is a, it is a pejorative term, meaning it's a, it's a, it's a bad term. It's a, it's a term that kind of casts them in a bad light. The uncircumcision, those filthy Gentiles. Well, Abraham was one of those for a while. And thereby can become the father of those same people now through the gospel. That's Paul's point. Father of circumcised believers. Father of uncircumcised believers. Because he's the father of what? Those who have faith. That's who he's the father of. Those who have faith. Galatians 3, 7 and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Isn't it amazing that God orchestrated all of these events in the specific order? We, we studied Genesis. We walked through each of those paragraphs and Each of those chapters in Genesis with Abraham, we saw the order unfold in real time, watching it there happen. And what we're being told here is that God had a very specific purpose in view in the ordering of those events and in the ordering of those declarations and those words. God's purpose from the beginning, that the blessing of sins removed would come to all peoples. Genesis 12, 3, to all the families of the earth. To us. To us. You know, when you open up Ephesians and you read Paul telling the, the Christians of Ephesus, those Greek-speaking Gentiles, that you were without God in the world, that you come from basically people who are without hope and estranged from God, we, we just don't feel the weight of that. As Gentile Christians, largely here, and I don't know who does or does not have Jewish ancestry for that matter. I don't know whether or not I do. But largely here, we're talking about a gathering of Gentile Christians. Feel the weight of that in Ephesians. When Paul says that, feel the weight of this, that God made a promise, this one man, Abraham, that through his descendant, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here we are, different households, gathered in Noonan, Georgia, in America, in North America, the 21st century, Gentiles worshiping the God of Abraham because of this plan that began thousands of years ago and in eternity in the mind of God. By the faith of Abraham, in the seed of Abraham, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Lord, we read the Bible and we feel a lot more like David. Lord, as we see our sin, we feel the weight of our sin, our sinful thoughts, our sinful neglect, our sinful selfishness, pride, lack of love. Lord God, we, like David, declare, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And God, as we read these words, we see the glory, the majesty of that God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, 
the Son of the living God. And we look to Him alone. He is the object of our faith. He is the propitiation for our sins. His sacrifice alone covers us. And God, what a glorious thing that in Him, in all truth and with full assurance, your wrath will pass us by. We praise you, God, for this gospel and for this articulation of it, explanation of it here in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.